Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of dreaming radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's dream. Welcome to part two of our Authentic Masculinity Conversation with Dr. Rodney Bates and Miles Kelly. I am super excited to jump into the rest of this conversation. We were so immersed into our conversation that we had to break this episode into two parts. So you're about to listen to that second part of that conversation with them. We continue our conversation around masculinity and the harms it often causes. We jump right into the subject matter with the discussion around sexual violence, rape culture, consent, and accountability. We also talk a bit about hip-hop, sex positivity, and even Kobe Bryant. Let's listen in. This conversation around sexual assault and sexual violence and masculinity is one that I'm interested in getting into because... And, you know, we can take this a couple of ways, but I I wonder if you can talk about relationships and consent and then also the ways that we respond to accusations of sexual assault, particularly from from women and then especially, you know, from women of color and from black women and how we as men um, respond to these things and perpetuate a a, a violent culture. I I mean, when it comes down to consent, does that conversation, I mean, my parents had told me, you know, no, that no means no, but that was the the beginning and the graduation of my consent education. <laughs> and so I got to OU's campus and was like working with the GEC when I, and went through like Step and Speak Out. At that point, I was in my late 20s as a grad student. So I was like, so me, I'm really big on trying to make sure we're teaching what consent is because like a lot of people just don't, do not have that knowledge base. And we don't actually really teach a lot of, particularly males and black males, like what consent means and at what point you might have consent from your partner like last night, but next Wednesday you don't have consent um, and how you have to stop in the moment because you don't have the consent. So like is a, a very uh, important topic and like a topic we have to talk about because we do not have enough education around consent particularly. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would even, you know, possibly go a step further um, as, you know, black men or men in most cases are socialized to think about relationships very uh, narrow, right? that really the predatory behavior before you meet the girl mm-hmm. is in, in some ways conditioned to men, right? To, you know, I'm going to put on this facade so I can get this, right? And so we don't really think about, you know, how that also plays a part into consent. And we, in some ways, narrow consent to just a yes and no, right? When in reality, um, there's ways that if we're not careful we're preying on women's, whether it's insecurities or uh, vulnerability to secure what we call, I got it. And so we need education around men to say, what does it really mean to be intentional from jump? Because I think that part of the reason why there might be men who really are baffled that a woman would say that they've been sexually assaulted is because they don't understand intentionality. Mm-hmm. We've been really raised to read minds, mm-hmm. right? Netflix and chill, mm-hmm. right? Hey, I'm gonna come over and we just gonna talk. Right? There's never a, 
hey, here's the things that I would like for you. What do you want from me? How do we proceed forward? And I know it's like, well, that's not really how that, that's whack. Who's going to have those conversations? But not having those conversations leads you into situations that you don't want to be in, right? And so intentional conversations, and, and, I, and I think that the more truthful that society can be, could be in the beginning, this behavior of sexual assault will go down. Um, and some of that, I think, also speaks to men's inability to be vulnerable. So like you might say, I'm going to come over, we're going to talk, and you're thinking something completely different, and she has no, the partner has no complete concept whatsoever of what that means. So it's like this inability to be, be able to be vulnerable and like articulate what you feel, what you're thinking, and what you want uh, from the start. Mm-hmm. That inability creates some of this. There was a, and a great resource, and I think it was a TED Talk, and they were talking about um, the ways we talk about sex education, um, which is pizza versus baseball game, which I thought was very useful. <clears throat> and it used, you know, the analogy of baseball games and how we first base, second base, and it's very one-sided, one, you know, competitive, whereas, you know, pizza's more collaborative, right? Mm-hmm. What do you want on your pizza? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I like this. Well, I like this too. Could we have that? more? It's, you know, if we could have more of a conversation about what we want on our pizza versus the unspoken rule about baseball. Then I think, particularly men, and there's a lot more, right? There's this socialization of how men violently yeah. think that of entitlement, right? That this is deserved. I deserve this. This ritual like college men right like i'm in college and it's my right to run through as many women like we've got to look at all of that unpack that and go all the way back to teach our men that um, intentionality around what is respectable what is understood needs to be talked about i mean communication Um, and i just don't think that men want to be vulnerable and um, they're taught not to be vulnerable they're taught not to communicate uh, read minds and doesn't help so Men, if you're out there, be intentional. Would it hurt for you to ask this question? Hey, what would you like to do? That's a, that's a good start, right? I don't know what you want to do. Here's what I want to do, but I don't want to do that if these things don't make you comfortable. Well, I don't want to do that, but I want to do this. You know what? That's okay with me. I would like to do that too. Maybe when you're comfortable, we may do this down the road. So you're really intentional, right? Mm-hmm. You're saying this is, I want to do this eventually, but if you're not ready, we won't do that. Let's do something that you're comfortable with. Whereas the predatory behavior is, let me see what she'll be okay with yeah. until it's not okay. That's not a good approach. And understand the power dynamics of that, right? When you are just trying to like read minds, oh yeah, this is what she wants, or right, this is what my partner wants, right? That the majority, a lot of the time, I'll say that person, your partner, she isn't just going to say no, right? She isn't going to like try to push you away, right? That that's not always how it is. Um, so, you know, to understand the ways that you as a man are, um, you have power over your partner, right, in that in that situation, right? And they're not going to always feel comfortable with you. So even if you're having those conversations, right, to understand, I want to do this, what do you want to do, right? She may very well feel pressure to agree with you in that situation, right? So you need to make sure that you've created a, a safe and comfortable space where she can communicate her needs along with yours. Right. Well, I think this is like probably a little off topic, but I remember when I was having the sex talk with my mom, I had it with my daddy and my mom. And my mom was like, if you're talking to a woman, sex should be mutually beneficial. So you should enjoy it, 
and she also should enjoy it. And a lot of the narrative around sex, particularly for men, when we hear in hip hop and the culture, it's beneficial solely for men. Um, and so like, that's one of the, it was like, a, people were like, your mom had a sex talk with you? And I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's probably a little bit different, but like when she told me that it made, so, it was like, it, as I got older, it was probably one of the best things. My dad had like the basic, you know, like, man, you know, you're going to do this, it's going to happen, and you got to make sure you're protected, and don't bring baby home. And that was kind of the it. My mom was like, listen. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it was just, it's was addition. But, like, I think that we don't hear those conversations. Why I always kind of try to praise, like, the city girls, Megan the Stallions, like, because when they talk about sex, it is so amazing to hear, like, their experience, like, where it's, like, legit, all about them. But I also think this is why we need to have men's spaces so that we can get them to talk about why do you think like this? You know, when we do get men together to talk about it, you see these very similar narratives, right, that are harmful and violent. And to get others to talk about that and be like, yeah, I've had that experience too. And to say, you know what, that wasn't a good experience. Or did you think about your other person that was involved? How are they going through that? And so I think this is important for men's spaces to have those conversations to be vulnerable so they can reflect and think you know, I've been doing some bad behaviors and now that I know, how do I change, right? How do I turn it around or what can I do to make sure that I'm not uh, harming uh, women or queer trans bodies? So you all still have fun? Do y'all listen to hip hop? Are you still able to go out and things or is, is do you have to stay in a box? So I think I constantly have this talk like with Rodney and some other friends quite a bit like, how do you listen to music sometimes? Um, and so I have like little rules that I've created for myself. And so, like, I enjoy hip hop music and hip hop culture, but there are there are some songs or some artists that like I have rules because I understand how streaming works. So I won't personally stream them. But if I'm in the car and the radio plays their song, I'm able to like bob my head, chop my foot. But it is incredibly difficult when you're thinking about because that's a, a way people are learning how to navigate the world, and like you have to really be conscious of the impact of that. I mean. It's a balance. Like, I'm a kid that grew up in the 90s, so, like, most of what I would have heard from Biggie to Pac to Master P, like, all of what I grew up on would have now would not be acceptable, really. So there's two things I do, right? There's a line that I draw. Like, there's just some artists not going to do it, especially if the, the harm is so great that I can't consciously sit through listening to that music. But the reason why I continue to listen to hip-hop is because, one, I like it, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. But two, I need to be relevant to the people, particularly men, to reach them. And if I don't know the latest, I become less relevant to them. Sure. So do I listen to hip-hop for enjoyment purposes? Yeah, do I actively act on it? No, right? Like, I know how to separate. I mean, it's the same thing, like, when I, you know, I use the analogy of church or growing up in the church. Mama didn't let me listen to secular music, but when I listened to secular music, you know who didn't say cuss words every time the cuss words came on? Me. I was trained to say the words and not say like not say them out loud. And that's how I kind of look at hip-hop. Like, I hear them, but I don't act on them, right? Um, and then I use those as references to be relevant to them. But there's some I won't, um, you know, the RKLs of the world, and I'm not, I'm not doing that. I, I refuse... Now, the biggest struggle is 
that if I decide to cut off hip hops, then where do I draw the line? Because hip hop is tied to capitalism too, right? So until I find another system, it's one of those, either I'm going to go all in or not, right? So I look at Johnson & Johnson. You know how many products there's under Procter & Gamble, right? Oh, so Dove did a racist. We're not buying Dove. Well, then don't buy all the other P&G products because Dove going to be okay. They're going to still survive because they have so many. It's so connected, right? And so it's one of those, like, your mind, I don't ever judge anyone that says, you know, for me, this is where my line is. I'm not going to watch NFL, and that's fine. I just know that not watching the NFL still doesn't do anything to the larger context of capitalism, right? You you may not watch it, but guess what? All the other channels that also support the NFL, from State Farm to Victoria's Secret, you're still complicit, consciously, unconsciously. And so I don't know if we're really ready to withdraw from capitalism. I think indigenous people probably have a good blueprint, but I don't know if we're there yet. So until then, I will pick and choose and I won't judge others. Just as long as that I don't see the action of what that is you're listening to in front of me, I'm going to call it out. So if you're going to call someone a, a B and you were like, well, it's because of the hip hop I listen to, I'm going to have a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to Rodney, so people about my biggest thing right now is looking at cancel culture and how we're quick to cancel people and like, when you cancel people, you don't do the work. Because essentially a lot of people are like, oh, R. Kelly's canceled, he's done. But like, he has a lot of things he has to like, he has like responsibility to apologize and own to the behaviors and the actions that he's taken in the last, I mean, I'm assuming a couple decades. Uh, and like, he needs to acknowledge that and he needs to do the work on himself with therapy, whatever it needs to be. Um, if it's legally going to jail, um, being prosecuted, whatever, he needs to do that work, and he's, he needs to apologize for the harm he's done. So, like, to me, cancel culture is really scary because if I cancel him, I'm throwing him away. And so, essentially, am I throwing him away or his behavior and his actions away? Because if I throw his actions and behaviors away, he's not being held accountable. Mm-hmm. So, to me, it's a really scary, like, a scary thing about cancel culture. So I've been trying to make sure, like, I'm trying to educate myself the most around that and, like, finding, like, my position in that and also recognizing two things can be true. So when I look at like, even topics like around Michael Jackson, for example, Michael Jackson's music, I mean, my God, just like next level. But I also recognize that there's, there are moments and instances in his personal life that I have to like pause and have to question and have to look at critically. But those two things are both true. And so two things can be true at the same time. And so I can't like his body of work musically, but also I can't overlook his personal life and the harm that he's possibly done because we don't know legally, but I can't overlook that harm either. So like it's a both thing for me in a lot of ways, but also I can I do believe two things can be true at the same time. Also, I think we had to talk a couple of weeks or last week around Kobe Bryant. I mean, there's been lots of back and forth with between Snoop Dogg and Gail and Snoop got on. I think Snoop got on social media and really showed his ass, to be frank, uh, and went well over the line and way way like really did a whole lot of like foolishness. But like, and I'm actually glad you brought that up real quick. Because this kind of brings in the sheer complication, right, of how, you know, misogyny and uh, masculinity works. So the thing is, is that you can call out Gail without being misogynistic, right? I don't mind. But are you calling out Gail? Because Gail also made an apology because the studio, CBS, actually cut 
and made a clip of a piece of the interview and published a piece of the interview and she called it out herself. It's like, I apologize because I'd be mad at myself. So like in the in those caveats, like I still have a critique for Gail asking the question in that light, even with the whole context of the interview. So what was the question? Uh, the question was asking Leslie Jones, Lisa Leslie, sorry, about her friendship with Kobe and his, you know, the complicated life of with the sexual assault. And I think that the question in terms of journalism can be asked. I just think that the timing of it wasn't right. You had 17 years mm. to interview Lisa and ask that question. So and this is why I think Gail was complicit to the capitalism of her company. It made sense to interview Lisa, right, at the death of Kobe Bryant. It, it's going to get a lot of views. Yeah. So that in of itself, in my opinion, was was a but little also bit. like at that moment, we're looking at his legacy in a way that it. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because on one hand, you had nearly the entire black community, a whole lot of black boys and men who looked at Kobe Bryant was their idol, right? This and that's really the only legacy. And I think particularly people my age, who are you know of the college age, that eighteen to twenty four. Um, you know, in 2003, when, uh, you know, he had the sexual assault case, we're not remembering any of that, right? So for a, a lot of people our age, we've never even heard of it. But for uh, people who aren't basketball fans, who could care less about sports, right, their only interface ever with Kobe Bryant, for people who are working in gender-based violence prevention or feminist or what have you, with Kobe Bryant was that 2003 court case in the ways that his, his privilege, as far as his manhood, but also his extreme wealth, um, got him out of that case, right? And and there was no accountability for that and no real apology or anything like that. Um, and so you had sort of this, and he had never, you know, never really had to be held accountable because of his stature in the culture, right? And was able to, to move along, right? And now he's in this place, uh, you know, post-basketball, and he's just sort of in this honeymoon phase where I think he was going to be for the rest of his life, rest in peace. Um, and we may not have ever dealt with sort of that 2003, right? And also how we deal with sexual assault and the black community. Um, and, and I think that the case is that much more complicated because his accuser yeah, right, it was, was a white woman, right. right? And how that historical trauma that ties into that. And as Rodney was talking earlier about systems, not to like blame it this particular on the system, we have to look at like the NFL, like in the NBA and like majors. There are cultures around like those spaces where like, my dad has friends that played in the NBA, and they were like, um, "Well, I would leave the ho- like leave the stadium, go to the hotel, but they'd be ushering women in." Like, there's like there's cultures that we have to make sure we're aware of also, and stop that as well. Because like I'm not saying what Kobe did, like he was like it was handed to him, but there also were cultures where we're implicit in like creating an atmosphere for these things to happen, either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, that are problematic as well that need to be addressed because there is a culture I think particularly around the NFL NBA of like girls and women being around that we need to be aware of also like that creates an atmosphere where harm can be done to women no, there's no way that there could ever be a no from you know a yeah, towards right. an NBA player right well and, and again I, I, I vividly remember I was a little bit I'm older than you all yeah. so I you know I had the context of like yo Kobe's wrong Right, whether he got away with it or not, and so I kind of, I even grew up like. The, when I always like, thought he didn't get away with. It. I thought that she refused to like testify. So in my mind, I and mean, he paid her off. Yeah, they, they settled yeah. out of court. So yeah. I was like, that's how I was. I always kind of knew that that was the admission of guilt by paying her off. Um, I wish I was like, well, go to court and then you got you do what you got to do, like because you did the action. But my, but my my critique is I would rather have the conversation have been you know the argument around Kobe alive saying you know I've dealt with that why are we bringing it up versus yeah now we have it feels no, wrong 
Right. Sure. We don't have a like the idea. Hard. Like he dealt with, and he could have had opportunity to have like a second act, basically, and like be able to do the work and acknowledge that he did harm and all this. But I mean, it, I mean, and it's very likely that if he was still alive, and anybody had ever brought that up, that uh, the entire culture would have come out, as in black culture, it would have come out. Why are you bringing this up? This happened 17 years ago, right? But it's a lesson to do evil, right? Know. I'd rather have that yeah. come out than yeah, we him not able to not yeah. really defend himself. But but the not not necessarily a complication. But then here we see. You know, Gail being, I mean, obliterated, yep. you know, because, again, I don't agree that she should ask it, but in ways in which black women are violently drugged, right? Um, this is the case with, you know, Snoop calling those names, and I didn't agree well, with and it. Well, and drug, and I don't recall CBS making any statements on her behalf either. No, and still, I have, to my knowledge, I haven't said So, anything. like, that's like, they made the, they, it wasn't like she did, she edited and clipped it herself, like, they clipped it and posted it. She gets drugged, I mean, like, on social media. That's what always happens, right, yeah. is that black women always end up in right. times where they're being harmed right. in public. Right. Violently, right, and that, and I think that's what happens when, also, we don't believe survivors of sexual assault. Absolutely. Not to, uh, render invisible the uh, the experiences that white women face, right? But what happens most often is that when every time an accusation comes out against a black man, we invoke the name of Emmett Till, right? Who, or we invoke um, the, the victims of lynching for false accusations or what have you, right? When that happens every single time that as an accusation or a survivor comes forward, that harm isn't being done to white people, right? But the harm is happening to black women. Right, who we know experience sexual assault and sexual violence at significantly higher rates than anybody else, other than indigenous women, right? But it's women of color who are who are facing these things at significantly higher rates when every single time we're automatically not believing survivors, particularly when it is black men, right, who are who have done the harm um, and we're just well, Emmett Till. And uh, you know what I'm saying? And it's like we can't it can't it, that that's not what it can be every single time. <coughs> That every single case is Emmett Till, because that's just not the fact of the matter. And and to invoke this black boy's name, right, who was violently beaten, is to me unethical as well. And I saw that, you know, with a lot of this Kobe Bryant stuff. And so to me, I'm the kind of person where it's also lazy, because we know, like, we have we have a wealth of knowledge now that we we, we can tap into. It's in, it's an incredibly lazy argument. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond being unethical, like it's it's lazy. <clears throat> and, and really, at all goes back to, at the end of the day, men needing to stop being violent, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they don't put themselves in those situations and or have a misunderstanding. You know, and I, and I know there's a little bit more complicated notion with the lifestyle of being a superstar, but I don't ever think that that would negate that you can des- decide when someone is consenting and not. Mm. So I think it's also a lazy argument to be like, well, all the women want me. Well, it just take one that don't. So if a hundred times they've consented, the one that wasn't for sure had a little bit too much alcohol, it is on the man to, or that person with the power. Mm-hmm. Really, and really it is about a position of power here, right? Yes, power. Them refusing to recognize the position of power they have because of their status is something that these men in those situations need much education around. Mm-hmm. And even in college, right? We see football players, right? We see yeah. basketball. They, they, they wear the, the, the logos of the university. They're stars. They need to know. We need to teach them early on. This is what can happen, and this is what you need to be clear about. Yeah. So last question. You know, the name of this podcast is Dream Radically Podcast. 
uh, the organization behind it is Foundation for Liberating Minds. And, you know, something that we're often talking about is, you know, dreaming of um, a world or a society or a city or what have you or, or a space um, that is more just, that is more equitable than today. Um, and, and everyone, I think, should have and does have, uh, particularly people who are doing this type of work, um, have those radical dreams. So for both of you, what is your radical dream, whether it's tied to masculinity and manhood um, and what that looks like or society in general? You know, I, I've been thinking about this for the last two years heavily, especially I teach the Men and Masculinities course, and I've always <clears throat> tried to get my class at the end of the semester to create a theory that's encompassing and inclusive to encompass everyone. Still working on it, right? Um, but, you know, I'm a dreamer. I I, I, be, I want a society as of maybe real, realistically for dominant identities to be disrupting the work in, in that particular dominant identity, right? So I want to be in a society where white people are disrupting racism. Men are disrupting sexism. Cis performing bodies disrupting homophobia and transphobia. Able body disrupting disabilities, right? Uh, affluency communities disrupting historically looted areas, right? When I can see that work being done, that's it's a dream for me, right? That's that tells me that the system is either changing or really being deconstructed. The dream that I want is to, you know, and I'm a structuralist by, I think, by theory, too. I think there has to be something. I don't want complete chaos or anarchy. I do think we need an anarchy before we get another system, but I would probably subscribe to more of indigenous uh, ways of thinking, um, communal living, communal ideology, communal education, communal, um, that we're more stronger collectively than we are individually and to destroy this social construction idea that we're so separate, right? But I don't want to destroy it now because we need to understand why we're separate. So I don't want people to be like, oh, you believe in colorblind. If we were to truly get there in its true sense, yes, but we are far away from that. So don't leave here thinking the podcast, Rodney, believe in colorblind. No. But ideally a system where we're so communal that we don't have to have a social construction to explain the differences. I think mine revolves around education. And so one of the things I talk about a lot in the work that I do is like, how do we make education beneficial? So like for me, like if the halls of academia here at OU's campus are teaching this information and like preparing graduates to go out into the world, how does education make sense for the East Side of Oklahoma City? How does it make sense in communities of color across this state and across the country? So how do you make it opportunities to connect education to the people to provide the same resource without having to pay multi-thousand dollars, whether it's to the institution or to student loan debt to be uh, here. Uh, and the other part is for me, particularly just like continuing the research, I think the biggest like eye-opening thing for me was this idea of being oppressed and I could also be an oppressor. And like that is the most challenging thing to wrap your head around um, because you, I think we, as people of color, particularly as a black man, you think that, oh, I'm because I'm black. That's my dominant idea. Like I'm oppressed. Like, I don't have power. I don't have privilege. Um, but like understanding male privilege and teaching that there is a male privilege is probably one of the biggest things I want. I think we can figure out male privilege 
and understand like what that means and how that looks and how it operates for men of color and how it operates for white men. It'll help us navigate some of that. I think like system work and understanding systems and how they operate and systems of oppression particularly um, will be really important to get us towards radical change, but also uh, liberation work and understanding like the connectedness and liberation work. So like for me, like I always tell people, I was talking to some, I think it was at a conference and they asked, if you support Black Lives Matter, raise your hand. So everyone raised their hand. If you support black queer folks, raise your hand. And like half of the room kind of like half hands were raised, but half weren't. If you support, like, you know, black trans people, particularly black women, black trans women, people like, and so I was like, we have lots of, we have lots of like stop points uh, in like liberation work, but like we got to figure out how like it's all connected. Cause like if I, I'm not free if a black trans woman is not free mm-hmm. or supports. I like it's directly linked to me, mm-hmm. and I, I holistically believe that now. But we got to figure out how we get everybody else on the same page when we're talking about the work to where we're all co- collectively connected and how we be fully become free. Mm-hmm. Um, what that process looks like and how how do we educate towards that? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Rodney. Thank you, Miles. I appreciate y'all coming out today and uh, speaking to me. No problem. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So I want to again thank Dr. Rodney Bates and Miles Kelly for joining us for this incredibly important conversation. We got to have these conversations, y'all, and we got to do this work. And by we, I'm, of course, referring to cisgender men. This conversation is just beginning, and it's long overdue. It's going to take all of us as men to begin to examine these things and do better by our communities, by society, and by ourselves for the betterment of all of us. We can be better, we can do better, but we can no longer allow this entire burden to be placed on women, on queer people, and on trans people. It's time to step up, men. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms, or on our website at foundationforliberatingminds.org. Special thanks to The Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma, for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well, and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.